0: in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit one god amen today god willing we're going to continue studying in the book of romans um last two weeks actually we we focused on romans chapter 8 which is a very rich chapter Um, And speaks very much about the sanctification of the believer, the work of the Holy Spirit and the believer. um, After having been baptized and receiving the grace of the Holy Spirit, how is it that we should live? Um, And so, God willing, today we're going to continue studying um, in the book of Romans, uh, starting with chapter uh, 9. So, in this chapter, um, St. Paul, he again confirms... Uh, the love that he has for uh, the Jewish people um, because he spends so much time speaking kind of critically about the Jewish people because they had this attitude that they are the ones who are the chosen people of God um, and essentially wanting to elevate their rank and their status and the idea of the laws of Moses that they had been following and practicing in the Old Testament, um, the practice of circumcision, wanting um, the, all the Gentiles um, to come uh, through circumcision and and maybe even having a belief that it is through their selection by God that this is what grants them salvation, um, whereas St. Paul is focusing so much on the sanctified life that comes through the work of the Holy Spirit and the importance of the sacrifice of Christ and the grace that came through this. So he's been speaking for some time now, kind of critically uh, about the the Jews. And so he's confirming again in this chapter um, that, that the Jews are indeed the people of God and they are loved by God and they were chosen by him in the Old Testament to be a special and consecrated people to him. Um, but he focuses on the idea that this was not because of their own righteousness or goodness or that they did something good to earn this status. Um, but instead, it was because of God's goodness and because of God's selection. So just as they were chosen for this uh, rank and this status, um, not because of something they did, but because of the goodness of God, so also God is choosing the Gentiles to come to the faith and to believe and to receive the blessings of salvation. And so the Jews should not have a feeling of entitlement because, again, they did nothing to earn what it is that they have been given. So, just as we are receiving a gift from God um, and we are thankful for this gift, if God also is giving this gift to another group of people as well, we should be joyful for them and not to feel like somehow um, we are the only ones, kind of like in a greedy way, we are the only ones who um, deserve the gift. And so St. Paul is going to speak about this. He says, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. So in a, in a kind of a very short span here, uh, St. Paul is focusing on all of the blessings and the glory that were received by the Jews. And he's also reminding them that he himself is a Jew, right? He himself was a Pharisee. And so not only a jew but like the most strict of the jews and the one who knew the law the one who was actually the persecutor of christians so he 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 is identifying himself with the group that he's speaking to these jewish people who are living in rome and he's saying i myself you know would sacrifice everything even to be accursed from christ for the sake of the salvation of my fellow jews who are according to the flesh my countrymen according to the flesh meaning like the same ethnic group as him his his like blood relatives the jewish people um and 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 then he says to them that to you has been, you know, given all of these things. Adoption, because you are chosen the people as the people of God. Glory, again, because as the people of God, you have received the glory of God. The covenants, the covenants that God made with them in the Old Testament. The giving of the law, the Ten Commandments, and through the prophet Moses. The service of God, that they were the ones called to serve the temple and to be in service to God. And all of the promises that were received and all the prophecies that were received through all the prophets, they were the ones to whom they they received all of these things, okay? Of whom are the fathers, right? All of the, the fathers that came before, they were for the Jews, right? And for, from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, meaning Christ was born as an ancestor uh, of Abraham. So Christ was a Jewish man. So in all these things, um, He is praising them, he is pointing out how God loves them, how God has done good things with them, how God has chosen them. So he is not trying to downplay the fact that they are the people of God. But what his focus is that he is criticizing throughout this epistle is the fact that they feel entitled to this status and that this status is unique to them and that no one else is allowed to share with them in this status of being the people of God. This is where the problem is, right? And we can maybe see this in ourselves. So, you know, it's one thing for us and as Orthodox to say, you know what, well, to us has been given the church because the church that we are, are, are members of was the same faith and belief of, as the church that was established by the apostles in the first century. And whenever we want to understand the scripture, whenever we want to know what it is that we should practice, we go back to the church in the first century and we say we are believing and doing according to what is it that they did and they believed. And we consider ourselves to be um, one church with them all throughout history. And when we look at people who have, you know, deviated from the church and gone and started other churches and other denominations, we point at their beliefs and their practices, and we say, no, this is not what Christ taught, and this is not what the church was from the beginning. Okay, and all those things is fine because we are speaking truly about what is it that God commanded, and what is it that is is our um, relationship to the first church. But then to go the step beyond this and say, and because of this, we are God's chosen people and everyone else is rejected and we make no effort to try to bring anyone else into the truth. This is now when we get into a problem because the Jews, they, they believe that they were the chosen people and that was it. Like, they're, they're joyful in their status. Like, they're happy in their status of being the chosen people of God. They're the ones who received the law. They're the ones who are circumcised and all these prophecies and everything came to them. And we are, we are happy in our status. God has chosen us. But beyond that, they felt like God has rejected everyone and that they had no uh, responsibility to go and to share this gift and this blessing with anyone else and when God began to share this blessing with others their response was not joy for them but it was criticism and it was kind of like cultural uh, greed if you want to say like they didn't want this to, to to be shared with them so also we should be aware of this in ourselves that you know, God gave us the church, but he gave the church for the world. The purpose of the church is the salvation, not of any particular group, but of all of the world, right? God wants all of the human beings to be his children. God wants the adoption of every human being because in the sight of God, all of us are equally valuable in his sight. So, so yes, we are thankful to God for the status he gives us as being redeemed, as being adopted as his sons and daughters, but also at the same time, we shouldn't be um, lax or complacent and saying, well, we are just you know self-satisfied with our status and do no action, do nothing beyond that. It is our responsibility to go and to, to bring others into this fold and, and to also be believers and to have the same benefits and blessings um, as we have. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called. Okay, so what is he saying here? He says, the Jews believed that simply by being an Israelite, okay, that means that they are the chosen. They are the ones who have, are receiving the promises of God and they have this special status. But here St. Paul is saying it's not the case that all of those who are Israelites, right, and all of those who are ethnically related to Abraham are by, by, by nature the children of God, right, because there are those who were rejected, okay? So those who focus only on um, the outward law right like only on the ritualistic aspects of the law but have not you know internalized the law and have sincerity and genuineness um and 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 operating according to the spirit of the law to those people right just because that they were circumcised doesn't mean that they are the children right nor are they all children because they are the seed of abraham so the criteria that um the the, the Jews were using to kind of differentiate between who in their mind was worthy of salvation and who was not was, was completely ethnic. That's it. Like it depends on your your you know who who is your who are your your parents essentially. That's what determined it. Right? Where here Saint Paul is saying, no, that is not the case. Um, in Romans chapter two, it says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God." Right. So the focus of St. Paul is, it's not just an outward action of circumcision that makes one a Christian, but it is the inward work of the spirit inside of the person, inside of the heart. It's a spiritual change that happens in the person. This is why like when we speak about baptism, baptism is a spiritual change, a transformation. It is not just an outward act that appears to be just bathing in water. There is a spiritual action, this is why we call it a sacrament, that's being done invisibly through the outward physical action. And why is he mentioning Isaac? Because he says, in Isaac your seed shall be called. Why? Because Abraham had many children, right? There are other groups of people that could claim Abraham also to be their ancestor and yet only an Isaac did God promise that, that it is through him that the Messiah would come. It is him that the people would be blessed, right? So just the ethnicity alone, just being related to Abraham alone was not the only criteria. There was God chose a certain group. So just as God chose those people who were the descendants of Isaac, Right, and the descendants of Jacob and the descendants of, you know, the the, the twelve tribes who are the, the sons of Jacob. God is the one who chose them for this blessing. So just again, as God chose, that's what differentiated them from the rest of the people. God also chose the Gentiles. Right? So it is not up to the Jews to decide. Right? It is very similar to the parable um, that we read about the, the, the workers of the, the vineyard, the workers of the eleventh hour. Right in this parable, you have these groups of men who are coming at various times of the day, and there is this landowner um, who is hiring them one after the other, after the other. Um, every like he goes out throughout the day, so he'll go like the first hour, the third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, and every time until he goes out to the eleventh hour, and he'll hire more of these workers. And from the very beginning, the workers of the first hour, he agreed with them that they would uh, get paid one denarius for their labor, and then. At finally at the end when the 11th hour workers came uh they also were to be paid a wage okay then at the end of the day he brought the 11th hour workers and he paid them a denarius and he went all the way down until the workers of the first hour and he paid them all a denarius right and the workers of the first hour were upset they're like why are you paying the workers who came at the very end of the day the same wage that you are paying us who have worked the entire day right and the, the The meaning of this parable was referring to this, right? Saying there were the groups of the Jewish people who were like considered the first hour workers, right? They were there from the very beginning. They were the chosen group from the very beginning. And they received their blessing. They received their status. They received all the covenants, the law, like everything that they received, okay? But then later on, much later on, there came the Gentiles. The Gentiles were not there from the beginning, and yet, God still chose them and God still blessed them and he gave them the same opportunity for salvation that he gave the very first hour workers. And so the first hour workers, they were caught up in the idea that my work that I did is what is earning me salvation, whereas God is saying it is not about the work, right? Even though you might have worked longer in the sense that you were chosen earlier, it does it, your salvation is based on the goodness of the master not based on the work of the uh of the of uh, that you have done. And if you think about this parable, and what's striking about this parable is that from a earthly perspective, if you try to think about it from like a phys- like in an earthly terms, there is no landowner who would go at the 11th hour, which is like 5 p.m. and go and hire workers when the day is almost done, right? Like you wouldn't do that. You would just say, well, I'll, I'll just wait until tomorrow and then I'll hire them tomorrow. Why would I pay them a wage and there's barely any time left to do the work? And so it gives you insight into in this parable in this landowner is that his, this landowner was not con, you know, interested so much in the work that these people were able to produce. Because if he was, he wouldn't hire them so late in the day. He was interested in blessing them. He was interested in giving them something, not taking something from them. So just as God blessed the Jewish people earlier in history by choosing them, so also now God is choosing to bless the Gentiles and to give them the same opportunity for salvation as the Jewish people had from the beginning. So St. Paul, again, he is criticizing the Jewish attitude and them believing that because you have worked the longest... Right? because you were there from the beginning, that you deserve some kind of a special status. And God is saying, no, your special status is based on their value in the eyes of God, not on something that they have physically done or, 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 or earned for themselves. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah shall have a son." Okay, so this is going back to the example of the birth of Isaac, okay? Isaac was born of Abraham and Sarah, and he was not born according to natural means because uh, Sarah was so old, it was impossible for her to have children, okay? So this is why we call Isaac the seed of promise. His birth was not according to nature. His birth was not according to flesh meaning the normal process of childbearing that we all experience right because that is that is impossible for someone like Sarah to give birth this is why when the promise of Isaac was given Sarah laughed right because it's like how is it possible for me to have a child in my old age this is how she considered it how she thought about it so that's why he's saying is the 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 birth of Isaac is not according to The flesh, okay, it's not according to the natural means of childbirth. Okay? Saint John Chrysostom, he says this. He says, It is the promise and the word of God that have formed and given birth to Isaac. Of what importance is it that the womb is the instrument, or the woman's inner parts are the means? Yet it is not through the power of her organs that the child was born, but through the power of the promise. The same applies to us. As we are born by means of the Word of God, in the baptismal font, the Word of God forms and gives birth to us. We are born anew in baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This birth does not take place through the power of nature, but through the power of God's promise." Okay, so again, not all the people who are the descendants of Abraham automatically are considered the children of God simply through genealogy, okay, according to the flesh right? Those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. The, the, the children who were born to Abraham, according to the flesh, the other children that Abraham had, that were born according to the flesh, that were not with Sarah, that were with other people, that he had other children. They were not the children of God. They were not the seed of promise. They were not the chosen ones. So it is not about a physical relationship with Abraham that brought the salvation it is because of the selection of God, because God chose certain group, right? That's what he determined, and that's what he defined. So here again, God is offering the salvation to the Gentiles. He's offering it to everyone. So there is no basis by which the Jews can claim, no, it is only for those who are the children of Abraham, who's us. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac for the children not yet being born nor having done any good or evil that the purpose of God according to the election might stand not of works but of him who calls it was said to her the older shall serve the younger as it is written Jacob I have loved but Esau I have hated okay so th- what is this referring to so the, f- the following generation after now Isaac is married to Rebekah And they have two children, Jacob and Esau, okay? So speaking about the birth of Jacob and Esau, okay, there is this uh, prophecy, right? And here God is declaring from the beginning, even from before their birth, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What does it mean? Does it mean, again, back to the idea that when we spoke about before about predestination, that God is somehow pre-selecting Jacob and Esau has no opportunity. No, actually, it is simply the foreknowledge of God because in the story of Jacob and Esau, Esau rejects his birthright and it doesn't matter to him, whereas Jacob values it and wants it for himself. So he sees it as being valuable, whereas uh, Esau does not value it at all and he gives it up. So here, here God is declaring beforehand, before Jacob and Esau are even born, right? Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So again, right, both Jacob and Esau are the children of Isaac, right? But not both of them received the same blessing, right? Not both of them received the same thing. So again, it is the selection. Just because someone is a physical offspring from the line of Abraham does not guarantee God's favor. So again, the Jews have no basis to claim that because they are the children of Abraham, then that means automatically they are in and automatically, they are the only ones, and and we and God is not showing uh, uh, favor or or offering salvation to um, anyone else. And actually, in this uh, analogy, um, Jacob and Esau uh, represent the Jews and the Gentiles. Why? Because Esau was actually the firstborn. Okay, Esau Esau was the first one to come out, even though they were born together. But Esau was the first one to come out. So he was considered the firstborn, which is why to him, all of the, the, the birthright and the inheritance was to be given, right? The firstborn is the one who received all of the inheritance. So because he's the one who was the firstborn, he was to receive all of the inheritance and not Jacob, who was the younger, okay? But Esau rejected the inheritance and so Jacob ended up receiving it himself. Okay, so this is the same story of the Jews and the Gentiles. Esau represents the Jews who were the first people of God. They were the initial selected group. They are the ones to whom all of the promises were given, but they rejected Christ and God instead gave all the blessings of salvation to the Gentiles. You know, if you look in the world today, how many people who are ethnically Jews are Christian? It's a small number, right? Whereas if you look at the number of Christians who are Gentiles, that's the vast majority, right? I think probably all of us are Gentiles. So, so the vast majority of, of Christians are now Gentiles. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a gigantic shift in demographics. If you want to say that initially for thousands of years, all of the people of God were only Jews. And now the majority of the people of God are non-Jews. So in the, in the mind of the Jewish person at the time, they had difficulty to accept the idea that just as God has chosen us in the Old Testament, now God is also choosing the Gentiles. And we do not have a special status because of our relationship to Abraham, right? Because there are other people born of Abraham as well that didn't have that status. It's simply because of God's choosing, not because of something we have done or some way that we have been born and to whom we have been born. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. Right? Speaking about like saying, Jacob, I have loved, but Esau, I have hated. Right? Is it unfair for God to judge in this way? For God to say that I have hated Esau, okay? or, which means rejected Esau. It's not hated in the sense of hatred. Right. Um, again, we go back to that idea of foreknowledge. God did not induce Esau to reject his birthright. It was a free will decision that he made, but it was one that God knew about beforehand. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion, right? God's foreknowledge causes him to treat people differently, right? He he, he knew what Jacob would choose, so the way that the opportunities he gave Jacob, the way he he, he worked with Jacob wasn't necessarily the same way that he worked with Esau, right? God knows us even the things we have not done yet, okay? So this is why he says, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy and compassion on whom I will have compassion because God sees the future as well, not just the decisions or the actions that we're taking now. So then it is not of him who wills nor of him who runs but if God who shows mercy. So it's important for us to understand what he's saying here, because some people uh, misread this verse, okay? Someone might read this verse and conclude that St. Paul is saying that our personal choices are irrelevant because in the end, God determines everything, right? In the end, God determines everything. It is not then of him who wills, like if I have a personal will, if I have a free will, it doesn't matter. Uh, or of him who runs it doesn't matter any work that i do any anything that i practice in my life no decisions that i make it doesn't matter but of god who shows mercy right someone could read it and understand it this way okay but if we read it understand this way then essentially we are saying that we have no free will and we go back to the calvinist approach which essentially says there's predestination no matter what you do your whatever god chose for your personal life and doesn't matter even the idea of what we call irresistible grace irresistible grace means that even if like god can choose you for grace and for salvation and even if you willfully and directly fight against it there is nothing you can do to prevent yourself from being saved because god has already chosen you for salvation yeah does god um like always leave a a way out like for a way out? A way out from like, not sinning, for example. A way out of s- from sin? Mm. Like, was this for knowledge? Does he like? A, does he? Le- does he like open up like an escape route, and we get to choose whether to take it or not? Like, yes. Yeah, so, so actually, I believe it's Saint James who speaks about how, with every temptation, God means makes a, a means of escape. But we have to qualify what that is saying okay i can't make many 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 poor decisions and put myself in a place where i will inevitably fall and then in that moment when i am tempted say well god is going to make a means of escape right because if if it's one thing for a person to like be seeking god all the time and wanting like to be righteous all the time and running away from sin all the time as best that we can and then we can say yes god is going to make a means for us to escape sin but if i make continual bad choices all the time then maybe i won't have the strength to escape the sin when the temptation comes like let me give you an example okay like let's say i struggle with something and when that temptation comes upon me it's very easy where i fall okay and i feel kind of helpless to fight because every time the temptation comes, I fall. So compare that with a person who, yes, still has that weakness, still struggles with that thing. But they choose that every day they're going to pray and they're going to ask God to give them strength. Okay? And they're going to read the Bible and they're going to take communion and they're going to confess their sins. And they're going to like do all this spiritual work compared to another person who has not done any of that spiritual work. But they're both Christians. So... Let's say they get put in the exact same situation where one person has done none of the spiritual work beforehand, is not pursuing actively a relationship with God or participating in, in, the, in, the, in the sacraments or any of that, and they get put in a situation of temptation, whereas the other person who is doing all of that spiritual work, and then they get put in the same position of temptation. Which one is more likely to escape? Right? The one who has been already seeking God is much more likely to escape the temptation than the other one. So in, in that scenario, in those two scenarios, are we saying that both of them equally have um, uh, an opportunity for escape? Not really, right? Because part of the escape is actions that I have already done. You know, I think I mentioned this analogy before, like um, like when you build a building, you build it with a fire escape, right? So that when the fire comes, you can escape. But if you build a building without the fire escape, then when the fire comes, you're trapped, right? So the, dis- the, dis- the, d- the difference is a decision that was made before the temptation came, not in the moment of the temptation. So it's not necessarily the case that in that moment of temptation, there's always gonna be a way. Of course, we have free will. No one is forcing us to do anything. But there are certain weaknesses, and we know what they are, that if certain temptations come, we always know ourselves that we're going to fall. So to fight against that, of course, you know, trying to avoid the temptation to begin with, but in some cases we can't. So bef- before that even happens, we look at what does my daily life look like because that is where I'm going to build my spiritual muscles, so to speak, so that when those temptations arrive, I'm much more likely to be able to escape from them. Okay? <clears> okay. <throat> So if we read this verse again, if we read it a certain way, it, it makes it sound like our work is relevant. Our decisions are irrelevant. Nothing we do matters. And the only thing that matters is God. Is God going to give mercy, show mercy to me? Is God going to protect me? Is God not? Is God like deciding this or deciding that? And it's kind of like, again, it goes back to that Calvinistic view of predetermination, uh, predestination. Okay. But how do we understand it? So in Philippians 2.12, it says what? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. In such a verse, right? this, this makes it seem like we have a very big part uh, in, in what happens to us, right? And, and that we have a role to work and that role should be done with seriousness, right? Like with fear and trembling, meaning, meaning we are aware of the consequences of our actions and that good actions will lead to good outcomes and bad actions will lead to bad outcomes so we have to work and do it with seriousness okay um also in revelation 210 it says be faithful until death and i will give you the crown of life so again this is work like if i continue to be faithful until the end of my life i will receive the crown of life but if i I'm not faithful till death. If I do not persevere to the end, then maybe I will lose the crown of life. So these obviously indicate, and many, many other verses too, that our actions determine the consequences, right? So we cannot just say it's, it's arbitrary for us. Like we're gonna live our life however it is, and if God chose me, he chose me. If he didn't choose me, he didn't choose me. That's not what the verse means, okay? So um, what does it mean? St. Paul is not speaking here about the personal will, but he's speaking about the general plan for salvation for all mankind. Meaning it was God's plan from the beginning to choose the Jews first and then later to choose the the Gentiles. That was the will of God. And there was no amount of human uh, effort or work or decisions or whatever that would thwart that plan of salvation that God had. So on a on a very high level, like human race level plan that God made, nothing that we as human beings would do would stop that plan from coming to fruition. For instance, nothing that any human being could have chosen would have stopped um, the crucifixion of Christ, nothing. There was nothing that anyone could have done to make it such that Christ was not crucified because this was the choice that he made to implement And no one can stand against that decision, right? So there are some things that when God says it will be done, absolutely it will be done. You know, if you read about all of the um, prophecies in the Old Testament about Christ and the details related to his life and so on, right? Someone could read those details and say, you know, I'm going to prevent this from happening. No one could prevent it from happening, no matter what, because God is more clever than us. Okay. But when when you speak about someone's personal choices, about their personal outcomes, right? That's not what this is referring to. Right? This is again the context of this verse is in this whole discussion about salvation for the Jews and salvations for the Gentiles. That the Jews originally were the ones who were the chosen people of God, and now also the Gentiles are the chosen people of God. So that's the context that we are reading this verse in, and this is why he's mentioning it here. It is not about a personal will, right? It is not about that in my personal life that God is gonna override my will and that no matter what I choose, it's irrelevant because God is the one who chooses, right? So that's, that's why it's very important, you know, sometimes people will like trying to prove a point. They'll like go and find a verse that's related to it and be like, see, this is what it says. And maybe that person themselves doesn't understand, you know, like if if you don't read, like the book of Romans is one of these books that there's a lot of stuff in it and some of the things in it, if you don't read it with the right understanding and the context of who he's writing to and why he's saying the things that he's saying, maybe you'll get a very, very wrong understanding um, about God from reading this book. So we have to understand the context. St. Paul wrote this book to a specific group of people. It doesn't mean that we don't all benefit from it. We do. But we have to understand the context that he wrote it so that we can fully understand what he is trying to say. Is that clear? Yeah. I'm not sure how to to word this, but so when we talk about God removing grace from someone, is that the same as us rejecting God's grace? Because since we don't believe in irresistible uh irresistible grace, grace. yes mm. so we do believe that we can resist that we can reject that from god is do you i don't know how to yeah so the concept of irresistible grace means that god is going to force his grace on me right so god god is gonna against my will he will save me so i'm trying to reject him and I don't want him, and I don't want salvation, and I don't believe in him, but because God chose me, I'm out of luck. That's irresistible grace. Like That is an extreme form of Calvinism, and the idea of predestination that if God chooses you, even if you are fighting against him, you can't stop it. Okay. But to the first point that you said is what does it mean for the grace of God to leave us? Is that what you're asking? So when we have the grace of God in our life he blesses us in some aspect in many aspects right so for instance it says about when King Saul became king it says that the spirit of God came upon him for what purpose it came upon him to enable him to do the job of king it gave him wisdom to be king it gave him understanding it gave him discernment it gave him courage it gave him you know knowledge and understanding to do his job as king and when King Saul sinned against God and God rejected him from being king, it says that the spirit of God left him. Okay, so again, what does that mean? It means that this, the extra like blessing that God was giving him for the purpose of, of allowing him to be a good king was removed. So now he is like left to himself, right? So for instance, God gives us reason and understanding, but with the grace of God in us, everything is like amplified and it's, been, it's given like a spiritual nature to be able to go beyond just the human reasoning and have also the spiritual reasoning, right? So if a person rejects God and the grace of God leaves that person, then they will not have the benefit of the spiritual blessings that God is giving them in some aspect. There are some ways that the grace of God doesn't leave completely. Like So for instance, after a person is chrismated, they receive the Holy Spirit, okay? And the, the Holy Spirit in them will never leave completely because they have received it as a seal, okay? But it doesn't mean that we are actively working with the Holy Spirit. We can quench the Holy Spirit. like It's like someone, someone's voice who's trying to speak to me has become so diminished that I can't discern it or hear it or understand it. And so it's like it's not there, but it's never completely gone. This is why we never re-baptize anyone, okay? Um, Like even, like this was actually a controversy in the early church where um, there was a group that was saying if if people lapsed, meaning they apostatized, they left the Christianity completely, um, and then they repented and came back, should we baptize them again or not? And there was a group saying, yes, we should, and then ultimately it was decided that no, we should not, because the Holy Spirit never completely leaves a Christian. Right, but we might not be operating with the Holy Spirit. We might not be um, listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit, okay? And we can't hear the voice of the Holy Spirit, and we need to take steps to remedy that. But but the the Holy Spirit never completely leaves. But when it says this in the Old Testament that I mentioned, this is the Holy Spirit not for the purpose of salvation, like we are receiving chrismation. This is for the res- for this is like receiving the Holy Spirit for the sake of a ser- of. Enabling us to do a certain work, right? Like in order for King Saul to be successful as king, he needed to receive this work. Another example is King Solomon. When God asked him, you know, ask me of anything and I will give it to you, what King Solomon asked for is the wisdom, right? So he could be a good king to his people and God gave it to him, right? So for God to give that wisdom, again, that's a type of grace that God is giving. And God gives us various graces, Like maybe he creates each of us with a talent and we're able to work with that talent. But when infused with the grace of God in it, the talent is amplified, is magnified, that it has a greater effect. We are able to do more uh, and experience more than we would have by ourselves otherwise. And that definitely is able to be lost. Okay? All right. Yeah. So you said His grace doesn't leave and we it's only because we reject it or He can remove His grace? It's, a, it's based on our rejection of Him. Like if God gives us a gift, He wants us to have it, right? And the grace is a gift. So if, if He chooses me for something and He wants me to have that gift, okay? I'm not talking about chrismation now. I'm talking about for the purpose of anything else. If God wants me to have it, then why would he remove it okay but because in a book i read <laughs> that it's like sometimes like when a parent wants their child to learn how to walk right that they step away from that child right so that the but for us in that we learn that we need him that we learn to rely on him more right that he may Is so that i not true? i would say that y- y- that's true but I would say that that's not necessarily the removing of grace. I would I would say that the grace of God is still very active. Maybe our perception of it is not. Like like for instance when 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 we talk about how God kind of s- takes a step back to make us f- have this feeling that we are have maybe have a feeling of abandonment and that feeling is for the purpose of us to grow, right? I wouldn't consider that the absence of grace. Actually, that is the work of grace because it is the work for our edification. It is, it is something good that God is doing. If God were to remove his grace, then that means that the result is going to be bad. So maybe it feels bad and, and, and we don't like it, but I would still consider that to be the work of grace. Yeah. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, this is speaking now about The Pharaoh at the time of Moses, who was the the king of Egypt when the Israelites um, came out of Egypt. says, for the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and on whom he wills, he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and making his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy? which he had prepared beforehand for glory, ev- even as, even us whom he called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So, okay, so what is, what is, what is this saying? Maybe I'll, I'll go back and read it again because you guys are not seeing it. Um, okay, I'm going to read it again. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I may show my power in you. So what is he saying? He's saying that God is the one who set up Pharaoh as a, as a world power, as the king of Egypt, okay? Why? So that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. So just like we said last week when we were reading the story of the man born blind, how when the apostles asked Christ, you know, who sinned, this man or his parents, so that this man would be born blind? What is it that the Lord responded? Neither. Neither. But why? So the glory of God would be revealed in him. Okay? So here, why is it that Pharaoh was the king? Because God enabled him to be in this position. Why? So that he could show his power in him. Not because he was like blessing Pharaoh, but because he was going to bless the people against Pharaoh. And that Pharaoh was gonna, in his stubbornness, because God knew that Pharaoh was stubborn, and He knew that Pharaoh was gonna continually fight against Him, and that every time Pharaoh had the opportunity to uh, de- to deliver the people and to allow them to go, He would refuse, and then God would send the plagues, and then even then Moses would or refu- er, Pharaoh would refuse, so He would send more plagues, and then Moses- and then Pharaoh would refuse again, so God wanted Pharaoh to refuse. Because this would give opportunity for God to express his glory, express his power, express his love for the people more mightily than if the leader of Egypt was just somebody who was like, okay, you can go, right? So even here in the way it was all set up, from the perspective of man at the time, man looked at it completely differently. Man looked at it as in there's this very powerful king and he is very evil, and he's very stubborn, and he doesn't allow us to go, how is it that we are going to escape from this? How is it that we are going to go? Is there anyone who can defeat him? And they felt victims. Obviously, I think all of us would feel victims in such a situation. But God, in all calmness and all peace, he's like, don't worry. Because he's the one who actually put Pharaoh there to begin with. You know? Like, God is planned for all of humanity is so perfect in understanding. God is not thrown off. God is not facing a challenge for him. There's no challenge. There's, there's, there's nothing that even like, like, even like challenges him a little bit. So as all these humans are like so in distress and so worried and like in conflict and how are we gonna do it and, and complaining and grumbling against God, God is like, I mean, I know what I'm doing. Just let me do what I'm doing, okay? And all of the things that the human beings perceived as the stubbornness of Pharaoh and the, the, the Pharaoh's never going to let our people go, God intended for this and planned for this and even put him in that place because of that. Because he wanted everyone to see his own power that he was going to express at that time. So then he goes on, Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and on whom he will he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? So so he's he's giving argument now. He's saying, um, if God is the one who is like doing all these things, so why are you finding fault in a person if they are doing something wrong? Because he's saying, well, aren't you putting them in that place? But keep in mind of what is it that I just said. I didn't say that God made Pharaoh do that. What did I say? God knew that Pharaoh was going to do that. And so he put Pharaoh in that place because of his own characteristics, right? Like if Pharaoh himself was not compelled against his will by God to do that, Pharaoh had a hardened heart. Pharaoh was a stubborn person. Pharaoh was willing to destroy his own, his whole nation, because he had this vendetta against the Jews and not wanting them to leave. So that was not because God compelled him or pushed him or forced him. It was simply why God selected him, because he is that way. Yeah, he had a way of salvation, because at any point in time, you know, at any point in time, he could repent. Actually, when we talk about why is it that God chose those specific plagues, do you know why? Because those specific plagues were attacking the gods of Egypt, right? The gods like worship the Nile, God turns the Nile into blood. The the, the, the Egyptians worship the sun, God darkened the sun. Everything that the Egyptians worshiped and considered powerful, God destroyed them. So what was the purpose? It was because God even wanted the Egyptians to believe in him, Right? And when God is revealing his power in this way, any person, whether Jew or, or, or Egyptian or whatnot, he would be able to see that this, is, this, this God is a powerful God, right? When you see like in Babylon, for instance, when Daniel is in Babylon and God is doing these miraculous things with, with Daniel, it actually caused King Nebuchadnezzar to believe in God and to make a decree and send it out to his entire kingdom talking about the glory of this god right so so definitely you know definitely pharaoh had the opportunity to repent right but it was his decision he chose not to all this makes sense to me it's the exact wording of saint paul that he says of whom he wills he hardens like he says he hardens Hmm. like i know understanding like it's Pharaoh who's do, who's hardening his own heart it's his own actions i just it it's, but the saint paul says he up uh, he hardens right yeah so can you explain that real quick i mean i agree that if you if you read it without that understanding it's confusing and there's other places where it says pharaoh hardened his own heart and there's places where it says god hardened his heart right so i think it's just the the way that it's written like but focusing on the idea that his heart was hard. um, But I I can't say that I have, like, I don't know why it wouldn't say in, in every time Pharaoh hardened his heart, why it's written in this way. Maybe it's because it's again, like has to do with the reason that God chose him. God chose him because of his hard heart. So when it says God hardened his heart, it's not saying that his heart was soft and God made it to be hard. I think what it's saying is God used him because his heart is hard, you know? So God's role in it was not to harden his heart. He was to choose someone whose heart is hard. You, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So to those people then, or in St. Paul's saying, to those people who are um, kind of, if you want to say, confronting God and saying, this is unfair. Why are you finding fault with us? you know, um, the response is, who are you to reply against God, right? Again, you are maybe replying without understanding what you are saying. Um, In the book of Job, after, you know, you spend like 40 chapters uh, that all of these people are talking, thinking they understand what God is doing and why God is allowing Job to suffer and all this. The first thing that God says after that is, you know, who are you who, who, you know, who who darkens counsel without knowledge? Like, who, who are you? the ignorant human being who thinks that you understand enough to put words in my mouth to explain why is it that I am doing what I am doing? How do you know what I am doing? You know, And then he goes on and says, have you seen like the storehouses of rain? And have you seen the way that I feed the animals? And have you seen how I essentially run all of creation in order for you to put words on my mouth and think that you understand. It's actually a really beautiful, like, little speech there that, that God says that kind of puts you, like, humbles you, makes you feel like, oh, you know, like, that's not, um, I don't know any of those things, you know? Like, so, um, so he's, he's, he's likening it to what uh, the clay, like a potter who has, who's, like, working the clay, right? And the potter is the one who is, like, making the clay, right, to be a certain way. And it's like the clay is, like, responding to him. and saying, why are you making me the way that I am? So so then again he says, What if God wanting to show his wrath and make his power known endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? So what is he saying? He is enduring with long suffering those vessels that he is preparing to destroy. So in this case, Pharaoh, right? So Pharaoh is stubborn. Maybe and of course we don't know the history of all the things that Pharaoh's done before this, okay? But what this is saying is um he has been long suffering with him. Maybe he's waited for him. Maybe he's given him opportunities to change. He's given opportunities to repent. He's given him a chance not to be the way that he is and he has refused. So now comes the the, the judgment that God is going to judge him for all these, you know, this way that he is. And he puts him in this position for the benefit of history, for the benefit of the Jews, and also as a form of judgment for him, okay? And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory so again he god had prepared these people of his to be inherit a nation and to be freed from egypt and to come out of egypt so again he's using the actions of pharaoh as well for the glory and for achieving the purposes that he has okay even us whom he called not of the jews only but also of the gentiles again when we read this we have to understand that um that this should be all read and understood on the level of like the human history, okay not on an individual level, just like the, the previous verse when we were speaking about it, okay um, God raised Pharaoh at the time of Moses, right to be the great nation um, but but now um, God also raised Moses and he enabled him to defeat Pharaoh. Okay, this is what St. John Chrysostom says about this. He says, This is what the apostle intends to say. Pharaoh was a vessel of wrath. That is, he had ignited God's anger by his hardness of heart. Although God allowed him to enjoy his long suffering for plenty of time, he remained incorrigible. Meaning he, he, he was not to be corrected. He refused to be corrected. Therefore, The apostle describes Pharaoh not only as a vessel of wrath, but as one prepared for destruction. In other words, Pharaoh prepared himself by his own will for total destruction. God did not leave him in need of the means by which to get healed, nor did he remove the things that would destroy him. Therefore, he had no excuse. Okay, so again, God chose Pharaoh because of what he himself chose to be, not because he was forced to be that way by god okay um again he talks about the clay right the clay cannot make himself better than the potter um and so we as human beings right have difficulty in understanding why things happen the way that they do and certainly no hebrew person at the time could have thought to themselves god actually chose pharaoh to be in this place because of his stubbornness right in um in ecclesiastes Three eleven, it says what no one can find out the work that god does from beginning to end right again at the at the at the level of human history you know even in the bible like the bible was written over a period of 1600 years and written by 40 different authors those who wrote at the very beginning like moses they didn't know anything of what was going to come toward the end you know like like they, they, they wrote according to their understanding of what was happening at the time and what God told them to, to at the time and what was happening at the time. But they didn't have a full picture or understanding. God did not reveal to any one person the whole story of salvation from beginning to end. And so, you know, in the litany of the gospel, we say, blessed are your ears for they hear and your eyes for they see. Because now in this period of time, we have the benefit of all of the human history all of the work of God through human history, all of what Christ has done, we see kind of this tapestry that's all been weaved together and now we can actually look at it and it makes sense. We can say, now we understand why the prophet said this. Now we can understand why these events happened. Now we can understand why Pharaoh was put in his place. Now we can understand why God allowed certain things to happen, right? We can see it now in hindsight, right? We still look forward to things that we don't yet fully understand. Like when we read the book of Revelation. But the majority of all of human history when it comes to salvation, thank God, we now look at it and we can say we understand. Whereas those people then they can say, you know, what what does this even mean? Like why is God asking us to burn animals? What does that mean? We can now look back at it now and say, now we understand because the burnt animal sacrifices and all the sacrifices were a type of the sacrifice of Christ. And so looking at it, we see the similarities between the two, right? At the time, the people didn't have that benefit. We can now look and have that understanding. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Such a clear prophecy. And yet at the time of the prophet Hosea, this is in Hosea chapters one and two, They had no idea what this meant, you know? But if you look back at it, you're like, okay, I will call them my people who are not my people. There was a group of people who are not among the people of God, but I'm gonna call them my people. And I will call them beloved who are not my beloved, right? And I will consider them to be the sons of the living God. Those people who are not my people, I will call them to be sons of the living God. So when the Jewish people read this prophecy, they don't understand what it means. And now having fully, you know, this prophecy having been fully realized, then you go and look back at this prophecy and you point it out and you say, oh, that's what it meant, okay? So even St. Paul he is bringing to light that, th- that what is happening now with the choosing of the Gentiles to be the people of God was not something that was unexpected, shouldn't have been. It was something that was prophesied. It was something that was written. It's something that God actually revealed to you a long time ago, but you just didn't understand what he was saying. Now let's understand it. You know and so everything that like this whole process of salvation the work of god from beginning to end right god knows it god understands. It, he has he's working toward one goal and it's just us as human beings that have to catch up and try to understand what he's doing also it says isaiah also cries out concerning israel though the number of the children of israel be as the sand of the sea the remnant will be saved for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. Okay, what is St. Paul saying here? He's using this prophecy, this is from Isaiah chapter 10. He is using this prophecy to mean that even though there were many who were called to salvation, but only a small number will accept and believe and be saved, right? Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, many, 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 only the remnant, like a small number, will be saved, okay? what St. John Chrysostom says. These words can be paraphrased, paraphrased as follows. I am not interested in crowds or in large numbers, and I am not affected by race like the Jewish people, but I am come to save those who come and seek redemption. He mentions the sand of the sea not without purpose, for he uses them to remind the Jews of the old promise, the promise that he made to Abraham, which they have made themselves no longer worthy Right? Those, those Jewish people who rejected Christ made them no longer worthy to be part of that covenant. Why do you therefore become disturbed when the promise is no longer fulfilled, whereas all the prophets have indicated that not all will be saved? Again, he goes back to the idea that there are plenty of, 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 um, of things to understand from the Old Testament. Plenty of evidence from the Old Testament that's making it clear that you're not saved simply because you're a member of the nation of Israel, right? That's not the, the criteria for salvation, right? So though Israel has been like trying to abide or abiding by the literal words of the law and the formalities of worship for a long time, god in the fullness of time he has now accelerated salvation through the lord jesus christ like when he says he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness it means like when he says the lord will make a short work upon the earth it kind of means that like the the work of salvation that god has been preparing now that the lord jesus christ has come has been accelerated like it's like you know it's now come to fruition it's come to pass everything that that God had been planning for such a long time, now it's like it's, um, Christ will make short work of it. It has is, it is, it is now been accomplished. And as, as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. Meaning what? God will save even if there are few, right? Not everyone fell not everyone would fall by the wayside otherwise we would become like sodom right who that was destroyed right it's like god has allowed there to be a remnant who is saved but that remnant is not just the jews what shall we we say then that gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness even the righteousness of faith but israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled that stumbling, uh, at that stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. This is the final outcome. The Gentiles who had never received the promises of the Old Testament, who were not receiving the covenants, who did not receive the law, Who had no knowledge of God before the gospel had been preached and did not seek to walk in righteousness because they were living in darkness and ignorance all throughout the Old Testament however when they heard the gospel message okay they recognized the righteousness that is according to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and so they converted and they left behind the darkness that they were living in and they chose a life with Christ right So he's describing now the New Testament, when the the gospel message was preached. Those Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, who were not righteous, did not have faith, they turned to faith, okay? But Israel who was pursuing the law, they have not attained to the law. They 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 have not believed in Christ who was the fulfillment of the law. They did not believe in Christ who was the one who brought salvation Because we could not obey the law, right? When they heard the gospel, okay, um, even though they had received many privileges, they were trying to find righteousness through the law and not through the Spirit, okay? They believed that their status as the circumcised Jews and the followers of the law and the ones who received the Ten Commandments, that is what brought salvation instead of the work of the Holy Spirit in them. So in this way, they lost their faith okay and and they can and what caused this it was the lord jesus christ who it refers to him as the stumbling stone the stumbling block okay it's like the jews were walking on their way and then the lord jesus christ came as this block as this stone and they tripped right they they, 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 they this became the source of their fall because they couldn't accept or understand the work of christ in salvation they couldn't understand that they were actually had no salvation because no one could actually fulfill the law they were so proud of themselves because of their status but actually all of them were going to hades you know like the the jewish people believed themselves to be so righteous but in the judgment they were all going to hades they didn't think of this like they didn't they didn't think to themselves we're actually lacking something they were so proud of who they were they were not thinking you know what we're not actually able to fulfill the law and we're going to be judged No, they were just happy with who they were. They were happy that they were circumcised. They were happy, all these things. And so now when the Lord Jesus Christ came, they didn't appreciate what it is that he offered them because they considered that they were already okay. The Gentiles, however, having none of the Old Testament stuff, right, when they heard the gospel message, they recognized immediately that this is what they needed, right? So they clung to it, and they believed on it in faith. And they didn't have this problem because they didn't have a law before. They didn't have the law of God. They didn't ever believe that they were saved through the law of God because they never obeyed the law of God. Whereas the Jews, having believing themselves to be obedient to the law, having received the law, they consider that this is what granted them the status of salvation, not in faith and not in spirit, but through um, the law. In Isaiah 8.14, it says what? He will be as a sanctuary, but a stumbling block, a stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, right? He is a sanctuary, meaning he is a safe place. He is the place of salvation and that is why he came. But to the houses of Israel, meaning Judah and Israel, he will be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense and a trap and a snare. So. To the, to the Gentiles, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ was a time of rejoicing. But for the Jews, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ was a stumbling block. This is, why, this is, the, this is the, the reason for their fall. And this is why they rejected Christ. They couldn't handle it. They couldn't understand it, and they rejected him. So this is the end of chapter 9, so I think we're done for today. Does anyone have any comments or questions before we conclude? Let's pray. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day, and we thank you for all the work that you have done for the benefit of our salvation throughout history. We thank you, O God, because you are preparing everything good for us and that you have been working, O Lord, even before our creation to prepare a place for us and allow us to go and allow us to enjoy your presence. We thank you, O Lord, and we ask you, O God, to reveal yourself to us more and more each day that we might know you and see you and put behind us, O God, all the attachments and temptations and distractions of the world that lead us, O Lord, to perdition and anxiety and stress and sadness and depression that are not of any benefit to us, and that do not help us to grow, and do not, O Lord, add anything to who we are. Grant us, O Lord, to see you, and during this coming Holy Week, let us, O Lord, to celebrate and to remember the sufferings that you have experienced for our sake to bring us, O Lord, to where we are, to allow us to have a church where we can come and participate in the sacraments and to partake of your body and blood and to be reminded, O Lord, of all the gifts you have given us and to be empowered, O Lord, and given your Holy Spirit for our salvation and to grow more and more. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark and all your saints,